Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's biggest, most compelling, and basically the most alientastic news in science. I'm Rohan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us today is staff writer Graham Lawton and science writer Caroline Williams. Hello, hello. 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 Coming up on the show, as Rowan said, we have aliens, or at least we have an interview with an astrophysicist who thinks we have been visited by aliens. We have a special report on the new vaccines being developed to fight COVID. We have an ancient musical instrument and an in-depth look at the fishing industry. And we have Caroline answering some of the most difficult questions in science. No pressure, Caroline. (laughs) Uh, But before that, a couple of notices. We have a stunning new podcast, it's all about the best distraction from everyday life that you could hope for. It's called New Scientist Escape Pod, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also get the ultimate escapism as a subscription to New Scientist with a bargain offer. 20% off a subscription. Go to newscientist.com pod20 to subscribe and get your discount. But let's start with the latest on vaccines. Graham, you attended a virtual meeting last week called The Quest for a COVID-19 Vaccine, run by the New York Academy of Sciences. Was it nice to have a trip to New York? (laughs) Yeah, if only. (laughs) Now, the point is that we are on this roller coaster of emotions at the moment. We have vaccines at record speed, which has been amazing. And then we have new variants of the virus. And then we have some problems with the development of other vaccines. So what's the latest? Well, I mean, we're going to need all the vaccines we can get. And actually, there are loads of really innovative new v- vaccines in the in the pipeline. Uh, so one exciting development that we're going to see quite soon is some new vaccines that are sprayed up the nose. Um, vaccines that have been approved so far are all injectable. But there are some existing vaccines that are dispensed nasally. So the child flu vaccine, for example, and that route also looks pretty promising for COVID-19. Uh, one in particular has been developed by a biotechnology company called Codagenics in New York. and uh, They synthesized the viral genome from scratch and in doing that, so are able to introduce weaknesses into it. And then you can just squirt that up the nose. Uh, it turns the virus from this sort of virulent pathogen into a, a weakling runt. And another vaccine I heard about is being developed by Valneva, and that's a company in France. And its vaccine contains an inactivated whole virus, which is dead, so to speak. Vaccines are not really alive in the first place. It can't replicate, but it still induces an immune 
response. And these vaccines are considered exceptionally safe, so they could be given to vulnerable people uh, like those who are at risk of allergic reactions from other types of vaccines. And also, this company intends to test its vaccines in children uh, aged two and above. And Graham, you also wrote this week about a couple more kinds of vaccines made using um, RNA technology. And uh, we'll tweet a link to that. But the other thing that jumped out in, in what you've written about is the development of a vaccine by pill. Yeah. Now, a San Francisco company called VaxArt is at the very early stages of developing an oral COVID-19 vaccine, which means that can be taken in pill form. So the major bottleneck in vaccine rollout is getting people to vaccination centres and injecting them. And this circumvents that. Uh, The pill's stable at room temperature and you can just distribute it by post. Wow, but I've not really thought about this before. So how, how does the vaccine not get digested in the stomach? Uh, I don't know the exact details on that, but they're designed to travel intact into the small intestine where they kind of dissolve and deliver their payload, which stimulates an immune response. I mean, there are still serious questions over whether it can set up protective immunity. So this is still a long way off. But if it works, great. We can also just take a pill rather than getting a jab. So as you say, we've got to have as many options as possible to roll it out. And a pill form is going to be help very helpful in poorer countries. And we've had lots of people like Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust and the World Health Organization saying that, you know, the, the pandemic won't be over until the whole world is vaccinated. It, it, we have to have equitable distribution. So where are we on that? Yeah, this is a concern because up to now, the rollout has mainly happened in high income countries. But I did hear some good news uh, about a new global coronavirus vaccine initiative, which is developing COVID-19 vaccines specifically for the poorer parts of the world. They've already signed a deal with a vaccine manufacturer in India, which can make 1.2 billion doses a year. Uh, They're going to seek emergency use authorization in India in a matter of months. And they're also negotiating with manufacturers in Africa, Latin America, other parts of Asia and the Middle East. So I think, you know, what we really need is a new Band-Aid record for 2021. (laughs) Not feed the world, but vaccinate the world. Get Bob Geldof on board. And uh, Midge, you'll rewrite those lyrics. I'm sure you probably know Bob and Midge, don't you? They've probably read some of your books, Rowan. Oh, (laughs) yeah, I'll just call them up. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate an organism we are feeling the love for. And what was that noise we just heard, Rowan? Uh, Does everyone remember Lord of the Flies, where Ralph blows the conch to summon everyone to a meeting? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, that wasn't uh, wasn't actually a (laughs) fictional schoolboy from the 1950s blowing the conch, but it was a professional horn player blowing a conch. But the more interesting thing is that the, the noise we just heard was blown through a conch that was made into a musical instrument 18,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So it's discovered in a cave in the Pyrenees in the 1930s, but it's been re-examined and researchers have found that it was used by the Magdalenian people who lived there this 18,000 years ago. Wow. So how did they figure that out? So it's been worked, basically. It's got a hole drilled into it and it's decorated with fingerprint-shaped ochre red markings Uh, so they're pretty sure the shell was transformed by human action and and it was basically turned into a wind instrument to play music and they've also found traces of resin at the mouth part where they think there was a mouthpiece fitted to the shell 
So to test the hypothesis, the team enlisted the help of a musicologist to see if they could play the conch shell. And this horn player produced three notes close to C, D and C sharp. Let's hear that again. Wow, it, it's, um, I don't know, it sounds a bit kind of mournful to me, actually. It's got a kind of whale song quality to it, you know, that etherealness. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So the the shell that this is this is from, it, you know, a, a conch is a kind of giant snail, right? Yeah, yeah. Back to life form of the week. Uh, it's uh, Charonia lampus, which is a gastropod mollusk. Uh, so, yeah, all snails and slugs are gastropods. And this is a marine gastropod. Um, and it's a big one. It's a fearsome predator. And it has all these whirls and spirals inside Uh, And that means that when the soft bit of the mollusk is basically scraped out and eaten, you have this empty shell and it's the perfect pre-made wind instrument. And it's also known as Triton's trumpet for this reason. And it's basically been used in early human culture all over the world. But 18,000 years ago is, is the upper Paleolithic. So this is really getting quite old. Time out. Time to tell you about our family of newsletters. We now have six free newsletters for you to feast on. Yep, we have Lost in Space about cosmology and quantum stuff, Fix the Planet about solutions to climate change, Health Check about medical news, Launchpad about space travel, Our Human Story about human evolution, and Wild Wildlife about the wonders of biodiversity. Yes, it's a spectacular collection. Go to newscientist.com slash newsletter and sign up to all of them. They're fabulous and informative, and they are free. Also, while you're there, check out our range of live online events that are really helping during this lockdown. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out about all the cool things we've got lined up for the year. Now, you may remember in 2017, there was this amazing thing happened. It was an interstellar object passed through our solar system at great speed. Uh, It was named Oumuamua. And at first glance, it was thought to be an asteroid. But then an astrophysicist at Harvard University called Avi Loeb proposed that it was a piece of technology, an alien probe sent by an interstellar civilization. Our space reporter, Leah Crane, chatted with him about this. And the first thing she asked him was about alien civilizations. Are we alone? Out of modesty, I would say no, because we know that of order half of the sun-like stars have a planet of the size of the Earth, uh, roughly at the same distance from the star as the Earth is from the sun. And, you know, if you arrange for similar circumstances, you, you are likely to get a similar outcome. So, you know, out of modesty, I would say we're, we're probably typical, you know, just like ants uh, on the sidewalk, nothing special about us. And if we never search for them, we would never get a sense of modesty. And that's what I'm advocating. I say, you know, let's go out and search because it's not speculative. As far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, we're likely to find evidence if we were to search. But if we assume uh, that we will never find anything, obviously, we will never discover it. Do you think that we have already seen evidence for for alien life or already been contacted by aliens and we just haven't been able to um to understand or to see that contact? Well, it's possible. Uh, if I look at them, astronomers are very often misguided. They have a prejudice. You know, it started in the days of Galileo 
uh, when uh, philosophers refused to look through Galileo's telescope. That didn't cost much money. It was not an issue of, it, it was a psychological barrier. They knew the truth. They knew that the sun moves around the earth. And the fact that Galileo advocated a different opinion caused uh, them to put him in house arrest. Now, that, of course, maintained their ignorance for a while, uh, but it didn't change the fact that the earth moves around the sun. But it goes beyond that because uh, very often, uh, you know, prophecies are self-fulfilling. You know, if you put blinders and you're not checking whether your prejudice is correct or not, you will never discover that you are wrong. And much of science is about, you know, testing your, your convictions, your prejudice by experiments, by evidence. And without putting skin in the game, you know, you will never revise your notions about reality. So many times things that we feel uneasy about turn out to be right. And of course, if you were not judging your convictions by experimental data, by evidence, then you can feel very comfortable. So I want to step back a little bit and talk a little bit more about your book um, and talk a little bit more about Oumuamua. Can you tell us about your sort of theory on Oumuamua, on why it's so strange and, and what it might be? Right. So Oumuamua was the first interstellar object to have been spotted near the Earth, meaning an object that came from outside the solar system. And it was discovered in October 2017 when it was already uh, receding away from us and no rocket that we have on Earth could have chased it. So uh, we missed that opportunity, but there should be many more that we could discover in the future and look for more evidence. And that's the most important message that I'm trying to convey, that we should be open-minded to the possibility that we might see a message in a bottle. Uh, as you walk down the beach, you see mostly seashells that are naturally produced. But every now and then you, you stumble across a plastic bottle that is artificial. And we should be open-minded to that possibility because we sent out some space junk and we sent out Voyager 1, Voyager 2 and New Horizons and other things. And it's quite possible, you know, that Oumuamua was maybe even a surface layer of a spacecraft that was ripped apart and it was just floating in space. Yeah, I will say the public response I've seen to this idea since 2017 has been extremely skeptical to the point of really very much dismissing it and saying even that it's irresponsible to speculate that that maybe this object was aliens. Well, but uh, okay, so you can make such a statement, but then look at the alternatives, okay? So uh, it's easy to make such a statement, to say it's irresponsible, let's not discuss it. Okay, I say, okay, but let's look at the evidence and try to explain it. Okay, you argue that it can be done naturally. Okay, let's see what, how do you reproduce the features of Oumuamua with a natural origin? And all the natural origins that were suggested are of things that we have never seen before. So how can you argue that we should not contemplate one additional possibility that we have never seen before, which is a technological artifact? Why shouldn't that be part of the discussion if all the other possibilities are things that we have never seen before? I hadn't thought about it, but it's interesting that you bring it up. There is this difference between how we regard the search for primitive and advanced life in the universe. The search for primitive life is extraordinarily mainstream. You know, half the missions I can name off the top of my head are searching for signs of microbes. 
but the search for advanced life, while it has certainly I've seen gained some more acceptance among scientists and the public in recent years, still seems fairly taboo and, and is seen as as maybe unserious in a way that the search for primitive life isn't. Um, why do you think there is that sort of vitriolic reaction against the search for I advanced think, life? I think there is a psychological barrier. You know, it, it touches us uh, at a closer level. You know, if there is something like us or even more intelligent, if we are not the smartest kid on the block, if there is something out there, it's a bit frightening and it threatens your ego in some way. If aliens, if we received an extraterrestrial contact now, something that was unquestionably extraterrestrial, I guess extraterrestrial isn't the right word, but something that was unquestionably from an intelligent civilization, what do you think would happen? Oh, I think it would have uh, dramatic implications um, to the psyche of um, the human species because, first of all, we, uh, you know, it depends... Uh, what is the nature of that uh, information? Does it indicate that indeed there, there is a superior uh, intelligence out there that is much smarter than we are? Because then we can learn something from it if we import a technology here to Earth you know, that represents an advance. Uh, it may be like copying in an exam, but it could be very beneficial uh, financially. You know, that, that could be like a gold mine waiting for us to discover in the sky if we learn about technologies that we don't possess yet. Another type of information is if we see dead civilizations that do not exist anymore, we can figure out why they died. And perhaps that will teach us a lesson to behave better, to be kinder to each other and to preserve the climate. Yeah, I do love that. What what do the rest of you think? Was Oumuamua an alien probe? I think it would be a kind of fitting end to civilization, wouldn't it, with the <laughs> pandemic and then aliens arriving. It just seems to be fit in with a narrative. A good way to go, yeah. Uh, well, it is easy to laugh, but um, I heard Avi Loeb defending his way of thinking by saying that plenty of people work on string theory, and that's just as, as sort of unevidence-based as working on something like detecting aliens. Uh, but then again, he has got a book to promote, I suppose. <laughs> I know the feeling. Now, Caroline, you have a child and like many parents are used to getting constant, but why, for everything? So much so that you started taking it seriously and researching some proper answers. Yeah, so I thought I knew quite a bit about science and the way the world worked until my son started asking me why um, but, but why? And also, how do you know? Um, so he's a natural little scientist. Um, and so I felt like I needed to give him some proper answers. So I started um, looking stuff up and finding proper answers for him. So we thought we'd use your archive and your wisdom and have a but why segment. If anyone has a question from their kid that they can't answer, do tweet us at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com and we'll put Caroline to work. So let's start you off with a classic. What's behind the sky? What's behind the sky? Yeah, so um, this was easy for the short answer, which is um, space. Um, but then it begs the question, you know, what is the sky then? Um, and, and, you know, when I started thinking about it more, there's not really a thing called the sky. It's sort of just the bit of the Earth's atmosphere that we can see from our position down here on the 
on the ground. Um, and so the way I explained it was, you know, that the atmosphere is a kind of a blanket of air um, and molecules and stuff, little tiny bits and pieces that keeps the Earth warmer than outer space. Um, and a little nugget I came across was that it the atmosphere is thick enough that if you could walk to the edge of the sky uh, where it meets space, it would take you 10 days, even if you walked all day and all night. Um, and it doesn't so much stop like a line, you know, kids often draw the, the, the sky starting above our heads and then stopping in front of the sun. But it does just get thinner and thinner the further it, away you get from Earth. Um, and it is a good job that it's there because space behind it is cold and has no air. So we'd be really a bit stuffed. <laughs> does that tend to satisfy satisfy your son? That Did that satisfy him, that answer? Yeah, I mean, I did find um, a few times that by the time I'd researched the answer to give him enough. Um, <laughs> this is when he was three, he asked that one. <laughs> uh, by the time I had the answer, he was like, yeah, all right, mum, yeah, put the telly on. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's nice to know. I can tell him again now if he ever asks again. Uh, you must have had the why is the sky blue question. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a really good one. And often it isn't. But today it is, at least where I am. And and yes, so that the short answer for that one really is because there's lots of stuff in the atmosphere, tiny molecules, air, gases, all that kind of thing. And the all the colours are in sunlight. But as this light is bouncing around, um, blue reflects more than other colours. And so that's why we see more of it um, if we're lucky anyway. And one you know little thing that kids often might not think of, but you know, the sky is still there at night. The only reason we can't see it being blue is that there's not enough sunlight to scatter the blue light, so we can't see it. Good, good to know the sky is still there at night. know, <laughs> isn't it? I always feel as well when you're on a when you're on a plane and you go through the the clouds and you see the blue sky above. It's it's kind of comforting that it's been there all along, even yeah. if it's grey and damp underneath. That's lovely stuff. Now remember, send us your questions or your kids' questions to at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. And now we've got a story about fish, and I'm unable not to mention that this instantly always makes me think of the Nirvana song with the line, it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. Uh, Graham, you've been thinking very hard about whether it's okay to eat fish. So like a lot of people, I worry about the ethics and sustainability of of my diet. And um, I, I worry particularly about fish because I find it very confusing. I mean, a lot of fish has label on it certifying that it was caught or farmed sustainably or responsibly or some words to that effect. But, you know, what does that actually mean? So I decided to take a closer look and it quickly became obvious that there are really no simple answers to this question. So, I mean, as a starting point, just think about the abundance of fish and seafood in a supermarket. You know, I went to my local supermarket to do some research. And by the time I was done, my head was absolutely swimming. There are so <laughs> many different kinds of fish from so many different parts of the world. There are fish, fish and shellfish, some wild, some farmed. And, you know, fish turns out to be the most traded commodity in the world. And you can believe it if you just walk down a supermarket aisle. Now, as I said, some is labeled as responsible or sustainable, but there are three or four different systems and you know how do I know which one to trust and I think we all need to think about this question because fish especially farmed fish is the fastest growing food category in the world we eat about 150 million tons a year which is only about half as much as lamb-based meat but demand for fish is growing much faster so fish has a really big impact on the planet. So what did you discover about how to consume it responsibly? 
Well, I discovered that to a large extent, it depends who you ask. <laughs> so let's start with wild fishermen. Caught... <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with wild fish caught at sea by the fishermen. So if you ask the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, which I did, they will tell you that about half the fisheries they monitor are sustainable. And now they freely admit that isn't good enough and that the proportion of unsustainable fisheries is still rising. But they do say that where stocks are managed well, overfishing has stopped and there are plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> All right. So, but is that good? Or what does a sustainable stock actually mean? Yeah, now that's a really good question. You should get uh, uh, Caroline's son to ask that to her. <laughs> she's going to struggle to answer that one. What it means? <laughs> what it means is that the, the current rate at which fish are being extracted is roughly equal to the rate at which they're being replaced. But that's by new fish hatching and smaller fish growing bigger. And that's what's called the maximum sustainable yield, which is the most fish that can be removed now and in perpetuity without depleting the stock. OK, so how do you know if the fish that you're eating comes from such a stock? Ah, yeah. Well, that's where it gets even more difficult. You can't know for sure. You know, but as a rule of thumb, if it's on sale in a reputable supermarket or a fishmonger in a country like the UK, chances are it's from one of those sustainable stocks. And if it carries a label saying so, then so much the better. So it's okay then to eat fish like that? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a stock might be sustainable by that, by those criteria, but that doesn't mean it's ecologically healthy. So most stocks have been absolutely hammered for decades and are maybe like 10 or 20 percent of what they once were. So it's possible to fish those stocks sustainably. But that's a bit like cutting down 90 percent of a forest, then looking after the remaining 10 percent and saying that it's sustainable. Right. OK. All right. So what about farmed fish? Yeah, uh, it doesn't get any simpler at this point. It's even more murky. So many of the horror stories that we hear about farm fish are true. So mangrove swamps being torn down for shrimp ponds, pollution, lice infestations, fish escaping, uh, breeding with wild populations, you know, fresh fish being air freighted to distant markets at vast expense of carbon. I mean, I can buy prawns at the end of my road that arrived here on an aeroplane from Ecuador. But the, actually, but the really big dirty secret of fish farming or aquaculture, as it's called, is that it's actually a net consumer of fish rather than a net producer of fish. Uh, how can that be? Well, the problem is that the, the fish that are easy to farm are often top predators. So salmon, tuna, sea bass, they, they eat other fish. And those fish are usually kind of small fry like anchovies caught in the ocean. And the energy conversion from small fry to farm fish is really inefficient, so like 10 to 1. So to grow like one tonne of tuna on a farm in the Mediterranean requires about 10 tonnes of anchovies caught in the South Pacific. Uh, so it really is similar to the inefficiency of conversion of a, of a cow trying to convert soybeans into beef. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I take it you've stopped eating fish. Well, actually, no, I haven't, uh, because there is a there is a category of aquaculture that is truly sustainable, meaning it's a net producer of seafood and also an environmental boon. And these are things like mussels and oysters that are farmed in the sea but don't need feeding. They obtain their own food from the environment, and they often create habitats that are really beneficial to other species, sometimes species that we fish sustainably. Mm. Um, so one scientist told me that we should think of aquaculture as two very different sectors. There's the tuna farm type thing, which is a bit like rearing beef, as you say, and then there's the mussel farm, which is a bit like growing vegetables. So now I only try and eat the vegetable portion, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm just delighted that oysters can stay on the menu. Yeah. Oysters are great in every respect. Rowan, you said you cooked an amazing oyster miso soup the other day. Oh, yeah, like 
there's something about like normally I only I think oysters should be eaten raw, but if you very lightly poach them, just very lightly in in a sort of light soup, ah, oh, so good. Made a made <laughs> yeah. a fantastic one at the weekend. <laughs> but, yeah. But do, do oysters have feelings though? Uh, well, the other yeah, possibly. This is another huge issue with fishing industry is that there is basically no animal welfare no. in wild caught fish yeah. or fish farming. So, you know, I think Kurt Gobain was wrong. Fish do have feelings and yeah. we ought to take that into consideration as well. I was going to say with his, his recipe just then, uh, Rowan was trying to turn this into a gastropod. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Graham. That's all for this week. And thanks to you for listening. Um, remember now to go and listen to our sister show, Escape Pod. And thanks, Caroline, for joining us as well, and Leia. Uh, remember to go to newscientist.com slash pod20 for a bargain deal on a subscription. Goodbye for now, and take care up there. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Oh.